Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host and producer of the Happy Hour, Olga Peters, and I am joined today with journalist by, sorry, journalist John Walters, who is the force behind the Vermont Political Observer website, which I highly recommend everyone check out. And unfortunately, Emily couldn't join us today. She had legislative duties all over the place and so had to um, take a meeting this morning. So uh, we will miss her and we look forward to her joining us again next week. So both John and I are a little sleepy this morning. So John, did I give enough of an introduction to like give you a chance to wake up? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'll I'll just note this. Uh, the the myth of the part-time legislature has reared its ugly head once again. Oh yes, it has. Yes, it has. They work. From, they work from January through May, and then the rest of the year, they're free, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, they're reading reports and they're taking committee meetings and they're working with constituents and they're preparing for the next legislative session. And yes. And Emily is the chair of one of the biggest committees in the legislature. So she is particularly swamped with understanding the state budget and taxation, which is something I'm glad that somebody smarter than me is, <laughs> is handling. Oh, me too. Yes, John and I off air were talking about maths and some of the math he did for a topic we're going to touch on in a moment. And, and I told him that I lost out on maths as soon as I realized there was only one answer and only one way to get the answer. And my my little elementary school brain could not comprehend a world where there was only one answer to a question. And I think that's where maths and I parted ways. Yes. <laughs> anyway, speaking of math. Yes. I would really appreciate it, John, if we could talk briefly The recent monthly report that the administration released on the general assistance housing program, I know that you've been following that very carefully to see how that program is being uh, transformed, ramped down, and people are are or are not finding new housing. So what did this month tell you or the recent one tell you? Well, just for a, a tiny bit of background, I'll try to make this very brief. The voucher program was a creation of the pandemic, and it was largely federally funded. It allowed people without housing or shelter to stay in motel rooms at state expense. It was supposed to end last year, and then it was extended to this year. And then at the very last minute of the legislative session, the administration legislature extended it again until next April with some limitations and conditions and restrictions so that the number of the the idea is they were hoping to ramp down the program by finding people alternative housing so that we didn't have to keep paying for motel rooms which is you know kind of expensive we're paying like you know market rate which is you know in a place like vermont is a lot so when this deal was passed to extend the program once again the legislature required the administration to report once a month on on how they're doing. The number of people still in motels, the people who have left, where they have gone, have they found new housing or what, and a lot of numbers. So the latest report is up for October, and compared to September, extremely little progress has been made. 
the number of households uh, in the program, which was a little under 1,300 in at the beginning of July, is now a little over 800, but it only went down by like less than 60 since the end of September. And of that number, only 20 households actually exited the program to alternative housing. So they are finding new housing for people at a rate of less than one household per day. Mm. <laughs> Not good. See, it shows you how intractable our housing problem and our homelessness problem is. You know, these people are, you know, most of them have disability significant enough to qualify for federal disability assistance. Many of them are families with children. Some are fleeing domestic violence or, you know, housing where the health code forced them out. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're not all like, you know, the lowest of the low. A lot of these people like are working Vermonters who have jobs, but can't afford housing in the current market. Right. Uh, but, you know, the people with disabilities say, you know, you exit them from the program and they're going to wind up in a tent or they're going to wind up, frankly, they're going to wind up dead. And so the state officials are aiming to ramp down this program and end it by next April. And at this rate, they're not going to come anywhere near achieving that. Mm -hmm. The most sort of appalling one statistic about this is I said 20 households were transitioned into new housing. Right. wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah. 32 households exited the program for unknown reasons and with unknown destination. Mm -hmm. So as I wrote in my blog post about this, we're doing a better job of losing track of people than we are of finding them places to live. It's a bad situation. And, you know, a lot of this goes to like state officials and particularly the Scott administration sailing through the pandemic with this motel voucher program Assuming that when the federal money dried up, so would the problem, and the problem's still there. And they have done, they did very little for like three, four years to prepare mm -hmm. for the post-voucher world. And now they are trying, they're in overdrive, and they are trying to come up with solutions. But, you know, the other bit of bad news in this monthly report is that in October, from what I read of the statistics, they didn't create any new housing in October. Okay. Uh, so, you know, and a month isn't much time to come up with new housing or new shelter arrangements, but no housing, no shelter for that month. Meanwhile, we are hoping to end this program in six months. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not a lot of time for finding people housing. And, you know, communities around the state are dealing with uh, uh, significant increases in homelessness populations. Right. And, you know, communities from like Canaan way up in the Northeast to, you know, Middlebury to Burlington, Bradford, you know, you find reports from all over the state of how communities large and small are struggling with the consequences of us having a lot of people who have nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. And remind me, John, this ramping down of the GA program uh, has had many phases. And so remind me, when people are exiting the program, whether they're to housing or, or unknown, is the state, the state at one point was, was going to end funding and people 
just had to find something, but have they extended funding to keep people in the motels until they find something like that? I, I'm foggy on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think so are our leaders. The latest iteration of this is the program was supposed to have expired this past spring. Right. Uh, at the end of June. And at the very last minute, the legislature and the administration agreed to a partial extension through next April. Oh, okay. And they did provide funding, enough funding. You know, the state had enough surplus money sloshing around to provide for motels for some of the participants mm. of the program. You know, some people had already been exited to unknown destinations before this deal was made. So, you know, it's uh, it was it kept enough people in shelter that we didn't have a humanitarian crisis. Okay. We just had a slow rolling humanitarian. I don't know if it's not a crisis. It's certainly an issue and a problem that we mm -hmm. have not fully faced. So. You know, under the current situation, the, the program is funded for some households through next April. And then this particular, there are other housing programs. This particular housing program is scheduled to go away. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that, that would require, that would require the state taking action in the next few months to find significant sources of housing and shelter for all these people with significant disabilities and all these families with young children and, you know, people over 60 and, you know, people who are fleeing domestic violence. Uh, these are the people we're talking about here, mm -hmm. and, you know, shunting them off, just not providing shelter is, well, number one, it's a humanitarian disaster if you mm -hmm. care about people. Number two, it's a huge social and political and economic problem. Mm -hmm. you know, Middlebury has a homeless encampment on public land right next to their downtown. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the merchants are really upset about it because they are experiencing some vandalism, some sort of like, you know, property crime. People don't feel safe. They're worried about people continuing to come downtown. Police are stretched to deal with all this. City people are stretched. There was a, a story on uh, Vermont Public, formerly VPR, about the librarian in Bradford, which is you know, a town of like 3,000 people. Mm -hmm. And she's just a small town librarian, but she is having to deal with uh, significant numbers of homeless people camped outside using her library as a day shelter. And, you know, she's like taking mental health training so that she can, you know, deal with these people, some of whom have mental illness. The fact that the state has failed to address this situation in a comprehensive global way means that all these small prices are being paid throughout the system, you know, the schools, the healthcare system, police, you know, municipal officials, public yeah. health. Everything is stretched a little bit thinner. And, you know, as I have written numerous times, the cost of not doing the voucher program is certainly quite a bit higher. Even if you're only considering finance, you're not talking about the humanitarian aspect. Right. The cost of not having the voucher program and having all these unhoused people 
is surely much higher than the cost of having the voucher program. But all these costs are spread out throughout all these systems so that, you know, so the you state see them. immediately right. yield. But truth is, it's, it's making Vermont a worse place to live. It's making every, almost every public official's job in Vermont harder. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole lot of suffering going on right. that we are not helping people with. Folks who I have talked to uh, locally at Groundworks, which is the shelter and program in southern Vermont, or Wyndham County, I should say, have told me repeatedly, and I this was years ago, so I, I the numbers are outdated, but it is much less expensive to keep someone housed than yeah. it is to get someone back into housing after they have lost it and they have spent some time, as they say in the UK, sleeping rough and being homeless. And I I just echo that to say what you're talking about with the strain that homelessness puts on the entire system from the individual who is suffering all the way up to all the services that that now have to kind of kick into gear. It's also, if you have homeless people, it is cheaper to, and better outcomes, to get them into housing than mm-hmm. to try to deal with the other issues that they're facing without right. getting them into housing. You know, it's called housing first is the concept. And it's proven, it works. The problem is it costs money. Mm-hmm. And it means you have to act on things like, you know, building and development and stuff like that, which is a, a hard thing to do. And Well, that's one question I wanted to ask you, and I don't know that you would have the answer to it, but as you're going through these reports and you're following what happens with folks in this GA program, where are you seeing the gaps in the system? Has it been that housing's not coming online fast enough? Is it that there's not enough funding in the system that leadership didn't take action soon enough like where are you seeing the the falling down points well i mean the short answer is everywhere i mean if there was a single choke point that would be relatively easy to you know face and address and deal with it's a multi-level issue it's you know the difficulty well it it's right now building housing is extremely costly because of the cost of materials and financing and all that yeah you know, Vermont has been for a long time a pretty inhospitable place for development. You know, it's NIMBYism. It's, you know, we'd like more housing, but not anywhere near where I live, please. Right, right. Um, it's, you know, the regulatory burden to things like Act 250, which we have set up for good reason, mm-hmm. because we want to preserve the Vermont we love, but it also makes it harder to build housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, anytime somebody proposes a development, you know, uh, anywhere near where I live, there is immediate outcry against it. Hmm. And the process of getting working through all of that is lengthy and difficult. And often developers give up. Yeah. Because yeah. they have to jump through so many hoops and the outcome is uncertain. That's uh, what I hear from a lot of folks I've around developing is with Act 250, many of them don't really have a problem with the permitting system itself because they're like, wherever we go, we're going to have to jump through permit hoops. That's just how it is. 
But I guess the way Act 250 is set up is it is a very uncertain process. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, if we take A route, then definitely we're going to lose the permit. But if we go B route, we'll get the permit. It's either A or B could fail. And yep. it's the uncertainty of the system that, that a lot of uh, developers give up on. And I, I just find that interesting. Yeah. You know, there's one a question that has bubbled up in my mind recently that I think I know the answer to, but I, I haven't looked into it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we have a housing shortage. We don't have enough housing for middle class and even upper middle class families. We certainly don't have enough housing for working class or the poor or people who can't work. There's a huge affordable housing crisis almost everywhere in the state. But our population hasn't changed that much. I mean, you know, we, we've gained a few thousand people. We've gained some population during the pandemic. But, you know, we're sort of in the low to mid 600,000 range where we've been for a very long time. Yeah. So why... I mean, if we're not housing any more people than we used to, why do we have a housing crisis? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I think the answer to that is the number of investment properties, Airbnb, mm-hmm. second home. A lot of people bought second homes uh, during the pandemic. They live in bigger cities elsewhere and they kind of wanted to have a getaway pad. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen statistics on that, but I have a feeling that all of those things play into the fact that we don't have any more people than we used to, but we still, we do, we have a much bigger housing shortage than we used to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's what's going on. And that's all, you know, that's a big part of the problem too, is we got housing being siphoned out of the market by various forces that have mm-hmm. nothing to do with giving people a place to live. So. Yeah. When I talk to folks around the state for the Vermont Business Magazine articles, the, the economic overview articles, I, I always ask, are you having a housing crisis? The, it's usually yes. Mm-hmm. And I say, OK, so in your community, where what do you think the issue is? And this, of course, is is not scientific, folks. You cannot take this to the bank. But so far, what I'm hearing is in areas where there was already sort of a, a like a tourist industry, like something like the Mad River Valley, Mount Snow area, Stratton, Stowe, that type of thing. Yes, a lot of properties have gone to Airbnb or second homes or Airbnbs because they are second homes. And, you know, no one's going to rent out a second home for a long term if they still want to come up and use it. Right. But in other communities, what I'm hearing, if they're not already having that kind of second home market, I hear a lot of people talk about just aging housing stock, Yeah, that you have this big rambling farmhouse that used to house a family of 10 grandparents, parents, children, and it, yeah. it doesn't suit who we are now, right? Like a single person can't necessarily maintain that big rambling farmhouse by themselves, so it's also this mismatch of outdated for, uh, housing stock. I think uh, another thing is just the aging housing stock. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of old housing, a lot of old houses, a lot of old apartment buildings and rental properties, and they are you know, not being kept up well. And I was reading one of uh, Arthur Mayer's mysteries recently, and there was this, you know, this early scene, a murder scene set in some very rundown kind of apartment 
building that you wouldn't want to live in if you had any choice. And it he described it extremely well. But there are a lot of places like that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the non-tourism heavy parts, you know, communities like Barrie and Rutland and St. Johnsbury and Bellows Falls and, and Bennington and probably Brattleboro as well. And a lot of the smaller towns mm-hmm. where there is not the economic incentive, particularly for like, you know, relatively low income rental properties to, to maintain them. So a lot of those places are becoming unlivable. You know, one of the categories in this motel voucher program, one of the categories of why this person or this family is unhoused is health code violation. You right. know, the place they were living was condemned and they couldn't find anywhere else to live. Mm-hmm. So again, that's the problem is there isn't one single choke point. It's mm. everything. And it's a long time coming. Yeah. It's going to be very a difficult, costly, and lengthy process to get us out of it. Mm-hmm. And it might mean taking a fresh look at what our communities look like. And that's mm-hmm. never a comfortable thing for Vermonters to do because we love our communities. But we're facing this in terms of like resiliency for climate change. You know, that's a big deal in central Vermont because Mm -hmm. we have floods in July. Yeah. We can't rebuild our communities the same way they were before the flood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's another part of this. We're facing uh, the need to not necessarily reinvent Vermont, but certainly we need to take a fresh look at how we do things and what we do and really think about how we can make Vermont a better place to live. Mm -hmm. Two points of interest. We're just about out of time, but I'll share this. The first one is I had a conversation with the town city manager, I should say, of Waterbury, who Mm -hmm. was was a great conversation. I'm so sorry I am forgetting his name at this moment. But one thing that's happened to Waterbury is, of course, with the pandemic, they've lost a number of workers in the sense that this folks are working remotely. Right. And so like the state ha- uh, office complex just doesn't have as many people in it anymore. There's a number of like small businesses that used to have those second floor offices that just aren't there anymore because folks are working from home. And he's working really hard to bring more housing downtown because his hope is that if we can bring more housing downtown, one, that will help with the housing issues, but two, it will replace the feet on the street that have disappeared in the local economy since folks have been working from home. And I just thought that that was, oh, that is smart. That that's a good plan. I'm looking forward to seeing how that um, develops. The other one, and I'm hoping Emily and I can have this as a, some of these guests as a future show, There's a program right now that's looking, has highlighted a number of downtowns across Vermont. Bellows Falls happens to be one of them. I think Barrie is another one. Looking at how we can do more infill housing and accessory dwellings. Have you you been following that? Not specifically, but I'm aware of it. Mm -hmm. So keep your ear to the ground on that one, folks. And I'm I'm hoping some people involved in that can be on on a future show too. We are out of time for this first half of the Montpelier Happy Hour. 
here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. But hang tight after some words from our underwriters, John Walters, and I will return. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I'm your host and producer of the show, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with journalist John Walters from the Vermont Political Observer about housing and the myths of rural Vermont. So I'm glad you can join us today. We also want to thank Brattleboro Community Television, BCTV for taking the video versions of our podcast and sharing them with other public access stations around Vermont, as well as, of course, you can always subscribe to the podcast wherever you do that. And hey, John, you want to try to remind listeners what we need to remind them of? Uh, I the the usual the usual speaker of these lines is Emily Kornheiser, state representative extraordinaire, who uh, is just too swamped with work to be with us today. And I have heard her read it a number of times. And I, I mean, it's it, it's the equivalent of you know the the disclaimer you hear on sports broadcasts, but basically the views expressed in this program are those of the participants and not those of of any organization that carries or fosters or you know anything else uh, the radio station or your community access television program there they are not responsible only we are responsible yeah, yeah we will put our own foots in our own mouths and yeah, yeah we're quite capable of that Thank you, John. Yes, unfortunately, Emily is too busy today and couldn't join us because, as we said at the top of the show, the myth of the part-time legislature does is is a myth. So she was working on legislative things this morning. John, uh, in the first half of the show, we you gave us that really great rundown on where the GA housing program is, and it's it's slow ramping down. But I want to pivot to another post on your your blog that I thought was really, really good. I really appreciated it. And it was just looking at some of the crime that communities are experiencing right now and also that really tough place we can find our in, ourselves in between what's actually happening you know, are we actually safe? What type of crime is is happening versus the perception of we've always been a safe place and now we're not? That kind of myth versus reality. And I know in, in Brattleboro for the past couple of years, we've been talking a lot about quality of life crimes. Mm-hmm. That in many ways, when I talk to folks in law enforcement, they say, you know, Brattleboro is still a, a safe community compared to many places in the world. But because of these quality of life crimes, like cars being broken into with people looking for, for money or quick things they can steal, oh, uh, house houses being broken into, vandalism, retail theft, that type of thing, it can kind of erode that sense of safety. What are you seeing in your neck of the woods? 
Well, I mean, we had one incident, you know, we've had like a very disturbing series of shootings, fatal shootings mm -hmm. in parts of Vermont that we would not usually think of as dangerous, uh, you know. One was in my community recently, yes, the double, yeah. a double homicide, yeah. And we had an incident in my town, as a matter of fact, that was relative, you know, minor, nobody was hurt, but a school bus uh, had a window shot out. Um, that's that's scary and straight up yeah turned out that the bullet had come from a homeless encampment where at least some of the residents were armed mm -hmm. uh, this ties back to what we talked in the first half of the show we had more people who are unhoused and unsheltered and that causes problems now, you have to be careful when you're talking about homelessness on the one hand and crime on the other because the two are not just because you have one, it does not automatically mean you will have the other. It's right? it's a Venn diagram where there is some overlap, but it's not like the two circles are on top of each other. Right. There, there are a lot of homeless people who do not commit crimes. They, in fact, have jobs and would love to have a place to live and, you know, would keep it up. But there are also people who are troubled, who are, you know, criminally uh, inclined and they are part of this population too so you know we do not want to you know paint anyone with a broad brush or stereotype anyone but this is all part of the, the the kind of the toxic brew that we're experiencing now where people in communities large and small don't feel as safe as they used to mm -hmm. and part of that is reality and part of that is perception we're used to being the kind of place where you don't have to lock your car doors and you don't even have to lock your house when you go out. And maybe that's not true anymore. Right. And maybe our reference, our, our memories of the past are somewhat rose-colored. Mm -hmm. Vermont has always been, you know, I wrote about, you know, the fact that rural Vermont has always had a troubled, dark side to it. Peaceful, it's been kind of invisible. But it's much more invisible, and yeah. you know, there's a huge amount of substance abuse in in a rural community, and there's a lot of domestic violence in rural communities. Mm -hmm. uh, there's mental illness, and there's everything. It's just more isolated, less visible, and you know the people are frankly often have more trouble accessing support services. Right. So, you know, the fact that we've had eight fatal fatal incidents in a month is unusual, mm -hmm. but it's not unprecedented, and it's not something that just kind of happened out of nowhere. Part of this is it's been true as long as there's been people in Vermont, mm -hmm. and part of this is uh, contributed to by some of the social factors that we have. We have an out-of-control substance use problem. Uh, that we have not addressed adequately. And we have all this, you know, crisis of affordable housing and homelessness. It's all feeding into it and it's all making us feel uneasy in a way that Vermonters are not used to feeling. Mm. Yes, yes. Uh, and and I think it's it's tough too. I was in preparation for this conversation. I was, you know, doing some research and I came across a study that was released either in 2022 or 2023, April. And it was looking at gun violence and saying that 
we tend to perceive gun violence as an urban problem. Yep. But that a lot of gun related deaths are actually higher in rural areas when you adjust it for population. And right. most of those gun related deaths tend to be suicides, but not exclusively. But the numbers tend to be higher in rural communities than in urban communities, even though we don't think of it that way. Yeah. I know someone who used to work at the VA hospital in White River Junction, and they were aware of, of a large cohort of veterans who were dealing with PTSD and other mental illnesses who chose to live far away from other people mm. and you know along the back roads and little cul-de-sacs and rural Vermont is a place where they can feel a little less burdened by by their troubles some of them they are they still have their troubles and that you know results sometimes in suicide or sometimes in and other incidents of violence. It's that part of Vermont that doesn't fit on a postcard. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I think we, we often, you were talking about the Venn diagram, and uh, we say, oh, if someone is poor, then that must mean they're more violent or, or something like that. When what it is is when people are struggling, and suffering, violence can can become more prevalent, and it's that suffering that that I think perhaps we are seeing more of in our communities. That's really uncomfortable. Another big question that I have been sort of like it's been eating at the back of my mind is: Vermont has a tremendously low unemployment rate right now, mm -hmm. under two percent. Mm -hmm. which is like unheard of you know almost everybody who wants a job can get one and yet we have a huge problem of people who can't afford to live here right it's a mismatch it doesn't make sense like with our economy <laughs> we can have like basically um, full employment or even more than what we used to think of as full employment because you want to have at least some people looking for work at any given time mm -hmm. and, you know employers are going begging to find workers but why is it that we have an, uh, an economy that seems to be you know purring along very nicely in some ways but is still spinning off all these people who can't make it right who are on the edge constantly and anyone you know their car breaks down or they have a you know broken arm or you know they get sick or or you know their hot water heater fails or any one of a number of things one thing happens and that and pushes them over the edge yeah um, into at least into homelessness or possibly into substance abuse or mm -hmm. why is it that so many people that our economy is working so well in some ways and failing so many people in other ways and I think that is really, such really a good question for, for a Montpelier happy hour here but um, <laughs> a we're, what? We're, for, we're getting really cosmic here but you know we're facing a lot of big issues and um, mm -hmm. Our leaders have a real challenge on their hands to try to come up with ways to meet all these challenges. I'm glad you brought that up because it's something I think about with my own work life a lot. Just trying to keep it brief, 
my grandmother in the past couple months before she died needed a lot of hands-on direct care. And I actually stepped away from work and went to complete freelancing so I could I could help provide that care. I was not the only family member making those type of choices. But I look at those couple months that that I was doing that for for Nanny, and it's it's like, am I ever gonna catch up on the wages that I lost? And it just made me think a lot about all the people who are working multiple jobs and or stepping away from work for for a certain reason and there's there's like nothing in our system to kind of buoy people i know we have a lot of services vermont does well in many ways with a lot of services but they just seem like economically we i don't know this it almost feels sometimes like when i hear people talk about oh I know I'm going to earn less money if I move to Vermont, but that's that's the lifestyle tax I'm willing to pay. It feels to me like we almost have some institutionalized not enoughness. Yeah. In in our in our systems and in our way of thinking about what people need to actually make it. Yeah. And you know, this we could touch on another issue we weren't even planning on talking about today, which is education and higher education, and you know what's going on in our schools and mm -hmm. uh, the financial troubles of Vermont State University, right? Uh, which is which ought to be a place for an affordable education for Vermont kids who can't get into UVM or into you know high class colleges elsewhere. And Vermont State University is really in kind of an existential crisis. And it ought to be a key portion of an engine that gets people from, gets people into good careers, mm -hmm. you know, into the trades, which we talk about a lot, and into, you know, things that take, you know, a two-year or a four-year college education. And, and, nothing, and that's perfectly sufficient to, to get you a good living. Our mechanisms for getting people to that place don't seem to be working very well right now. And that's another part of this problem, you know, getting people to the point where they are self-sufficient. Right. They, you know, they need some education and they need some support and they need some opportunity. Mm -hmm. And all of those things, things seem to be somewhat lacking. I question too, when the Public Assets Institute has looked at this often. When we talked about affordability in Vermont, if you look at, say, the tuition that the Vermont State College system is pay, uh, charging, and you compare it to other states, they may actually not be all that expensive. They may not be out, out of reach. But if the local community, same with rents, if the local community doesn't have the resources to actually pay that, then it becomes unaffordable. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder when we're looking at our economy, we look at something like, well, rents are too high. They're unaffordable. And it's like, well, is it, or is it the wages are too low? Yeah. Yeah. And how do, how do we get our economy to a point where we are paying people living wages? Mm-hmm for doing necessary jobs. And that doesn't seem to happen a lot. <laughs> we always we always talk about such happy things. Yes. And I want to, we have about 10 minutes left. 
Do you think we should talk a little bit more about the myth of rural Vermont, or should we go to Gateway Park? It's it's kind of all part of the same <laughs> picture, you know. Um, the uh, same little rat ball of of rat nest mess. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, let's. Uh, Let's let, let's let's uh, pivot to Gateway Park, which in a okay, way is pivot because it is an attempt to come up with a big idea to mm -hmm. address some of these interconnected problems that we're struggling with. Yeah. Uh, for those unfamiliar, Gateway Park is a concept that Governor Phil Scott, in a very unusual move, we want to encourage this good behavior. Yes, in some ways, yes, at least, but. He appeared before the, the city council of Barrie, mm -hmm. and he presented them with this concept for a redevelopment of an area of Barrie that was kind of down on its heels anyway, and then was hit hard by the flood in July. And I think it was hit pretty bad in during Irene too, wasn't it? Yes. Like, this isn't its first time that the north end of Barrie has been yeah. hit by flooding. And, yeah. And and officials are aware that it's flood prone and it's likely mm -hmm. to be hit again. So the governor with a local design firm came up with this concept, which he called Gateway Park, which is the redevelopment of this pretty large area of the north end of Barrie. If you're familiar or slightly familiar with the geography, there's like the Barrie-Montpelier Road runs between Barrie and Montpelier. And it's the main entry point for most people into Barrie. And that's where this property is on that sort of like western edge of downtown. Okay. I don't think it's probably ever happened in history that a governor has appeared before a local governing body with a plan for their city, which mm -hmm. he has developed. I mean, this is very unusual. Mm -hmm. uh, it's... And, and he made it clear that he was not presenting this as a fait accompli. He, he thought right. this is a starting point. This is an idea, mm -hmm. uh, nothing more than that. And I had really mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, this is the kind of out-of-the-box creative, uh, you know, comprehensive thinking that we need a lot more of. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, here's, you know, the governor of Vermont stomping his way into your town with an idea for, re, re, you know, like renovating a huge portion of it. Right. Uh, <clears throat> which would make me uncomfortable if it was my town. And it made some people, in, you know, there was one woman in the, at that city council meeting where the governor is, you know, presenting this concept for this area where he's, where they're going to like tear out all the existing buildings and housing and create this park, which will be flood resilient and also build new housing around the periphery of it. Mm -hmm. And she looked at this, at the design and said, wait a minute, my house is in that area. <laughs> You're talking about tearing down my house. Right, uh, right. So it creates all these tensions, but uh, it's, it's the kind of original out of the box thinking that I think we need more of. And it's something that, you know, I've often criticized the governor for not spending his political capital. You know, he has like an 80% favorable rating. Uh, he has the bandwidth to do some stuff that might make you or I or a lot of people uncomfortable. We might even oppose him openly, but it's actually he, he is the only person right now who can kickstart a lot of mm -hmm. stuff.
if he mm -hmm. chooses to do so. And this Barry concept is an example of the kind of thing that, frankly, I think he ought to be trying to do more of. Yeah. Uh, even though it would make me uncomfortable, and I have, I have questions about how this whole thing came together, <clears throat> which I will summarize briefly. And he is very close friends with Tom Lozon, who is a major property owner in Barry, mm -hmm. former mayor of Barry, who is talking about maybe running to be mayor again. Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Lozon is a very, very dynamic person who sometimes steps on people's toes. He is also a major donor to Phil Scott's political campaigns. And I suspect that Tom Lozon is a lot of the motivating force behind this Gateway Park plan. I don't think that it would have happened if you didn't have a Tom Lozon there in you know, having Phil Scott's ear and being a resident of Barrie and being extremely concerned about Barrie. Mm -hmm. And Phil Scott it has a very deep personal connections to Barrie. So there is that uncomfortable sort of backroom politics cloud around this thing, too. I think my whole point in addressing a lot of the issues we've been talking about is that we do need to get out of our comfort zone in some ways in order to address our issues and yeah. make Vermont a be even better place. And, you know, Phil Scott is on this Gateway Park plan, pushing us a little out of our comfort zone. Yeah. I can't really slam him for doing that when I'm saying we need to do this. <laughs> <We need it. laughs> so, you know, we'll see where Gateway Park goes. It would, it's it's far beyond the, the ability financially uh, for the city of Barrie to. Yeah. Uh, it's going to rely on a lot of federal funding that we don't yeah. know will come through or not. Yeah. The governor is working with Bernie Sanders' office to try mm -hmm. to get this funding. It, will it happen? It won't happen in its current iteration. There will certainly be changes. Um, but it might turn out to be a really positive example of what we can do to, you know, make a troubled city a better place to live and work and visit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So we will we shall follow it with interest as a certain character in a certain Star Wars movie once said. Yes. What what I I'm excited about Gateway Park and this plan is when I I recently interviewed the city manager Nicholas and I'm so sorry Nicholas your last name is names this morning are just not I'm blaming it on my friend all she had was decaf this morning Her name is extremely long in Italian and it's not that tough to pronounce once you get into the rhythm of it it's okay. but you know it's something that wouldn't fit comfortably on the back of a baseball jersey this is true. This is true. Uh, but one thing he said to me is he said, you know, we need this area to be resilient because it's been hit by before it will be hit again. And we can't keep keeping people in harm's way like this. Yeah. But the other thing he said is, but that doesn't mean we can just turn it into green space because Barry already has a housing shortage. Surprise, surprise. And so we will need to find a plan that not only replaces the housing that's that's been lost in the recent flooding but also looks ahead yep. and installs enough housing for what we need and where we're going and it does look like the plan did increase housing the one thing i didn't see when i went through the report and i could have just missed it 
is there's also hope that like right now the North End is considered a food desert. So there was hope that there could be some other community resources that like a grocery store, like a doctor's office, you know, things that people could walk to, to make the North End more vibrant and a better place to live. And I, I didn't see anything, but that doesn't mean it's not there at, at this point. It would be good to have that part of the solution, mm-hmm. be part of the solution, uh, is making it a more whole community. Barry has some nice stores and supermarket, like supermarkets on the periphery, but you need a car to get to them. Mm-hmm. And the little corner stores, some of them have gone under in Barry. So that's that's part of it too, is making making more walkable communities where you can conduct your daily life without getting in a car. Mm-hmm. So exactly. It is to be hoped. Well, on that note, unfortunately, John, we are out of time here on the Montpelier Happy Hour. If people want to read your work, where can they find you? The the blog is called the Vermont Political Observer, which the web address is thevpo.org. And it's not hard to find if you, you know, Google Vermont Political Observer or just even Vermont and my name, John Walters, um, you will you will probably get to it pretty quickly. Fantastic. As always, uh, if Emily was here, she would tell you if you want to reach out to her, you can go to emilykornheiser.org and find all her contact info. You can drop us an email at the Montpelier Happy Hour at gmail.com if there's any thoughts or feelings you would like to share with us. We always love email. The other thing I'll do in the show notes on the podcast, I'm going to put in the Vermont Housing Finance agencies, uh, I think it's called housingdata.org website, which just links to a lot of really interesting housing data. And I encourage people to check that website and look at your community and see like how long people have to commute to work from your community. What is the average age of your housing stock? What's the average cost of housing? I just, for me, it was very eye-opening. And so I I would encourage people to check, check that out. And... Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend.